The prophets prophesy lies, and the priests rule by their own authority, and the people love it that way. But what will you do when the end comes? Jeremiah 5.31 They bend their tongues like a bow to shoot lies. They have become strong in the land because no one is valiant for the truth. The people proceed from evil to evil because they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9, verse 3. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Rather than separating ourselves from the battlefield of politics, it is impossible for the people of God to be anything but fully engaged in confronting lies by exposing them. And we expose lies by acting on truth, not just by speaking truth. The entire work of the prophets consisted of this. Jesus regularly confronted political evil, and Paul describes his own conversion and calling by Christ in Acts chapter 26, verse 16 through 18, in which he describes himself as being called to be a witness to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles and to, quote, open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Neither Paul nor the rest of the early disciples had any questions about whether theirs was a spiritual calling only or if it had any political aspects because it was all warped and woofed together. No, they would not go to arms against Rome but neither would they bow to Roman or Jewish governmental control when it came to their message. That message could not be separated from their way of life. They were one and the same. They would die before denouncing or disobeying Jesus. And that brought them into direct conflict with the political. It is such an obvious and clear-cut fact that it seems a bit silly to have to say it, but... That just goes to show what an effective deception the prince of this world has worked on many of us in the church. We have to be awakened from a kind of foggy mental idiocy, which has caused many of us to really believe it is possible to follow Jesus and yet, quote, not get involved in the life and death struggles of the world. Well, maybe we should define the word politics first then we may be better able to determine what we should or should not do regarding it. Webster says that politics are the, quote, activities that relate to influencing the policies and actions of a government. The first century church did not seek to politically influence Rome. They did not pick it. They certainly did not seek to rebel or to overthrow the order of their world. In fact, both Peter and Paul laid foundation for Christian response to government by teaching that government is, quote, ordained by God for the purpose of restraining evil and punishing wrongdoers, Romans 13. They submitted to the authority that was in place as long as it did not conflict with their submission to God. The moment it did, then it became political only in the sense that the spiritual life of obedient believers causes political ramifications. When Christians refused to worship Caesar, for the Christians, that was spiritual. For the Roman pagans, it was political. When we refuse to affirm 
homosexual so-called marriage, or the murder of children in the name of choice. For us, it is spiritual. For the pagan American, it is political. But that it is a distinction without a difference doesn't seem to get through to many of us. Both have eternal consequences. To claim neutrality in the name of, quote, staying out of politics is high treason against Jesus. First century Christians had no ability to influence government directly. But the hand of providence that guided history from the fall of Rome through the Middle Ages brought forth the Magna Carta, the Reformation, the rise of the democracies, and the eventual establishment of a free people of the West, and did so in order to bring the creative power of the gospel and its resulting prosperity in order to save, liberate, and provide for the whole earth. Whatever oppressive misuse of that freedom, such as imperialism, slavery, or the rape of weaker nations, was a throwback to the previous evil from which the gospel was delivering people. No one can possibly understand the flow of history in the West apart from the truth that the gospel not only transformed people, but resulted in people transforming nations for good. God help us break off from our minds any chain of deception which binds us from taking righteous action to overthrow evil with good wherever possible. There are, sadly, however, many Christians who believe we are to, quote, stay out. Can you imagine Jeremiah or John the Baptist saying that? No. Why? Because the very concept makes no sense when placed in a realistic setting. Politics sets policy. Policy has to do with the treatment of people and their property. And otherworldly focuses on spirituality that make no room for dealing with evil and injustice makes a fool's game out of what it means to live godly in this present evil world. He has shown you, O man, what is good, Micah 6.8 says. And what does the Lord require of you but to do what is just, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus didn't say we are to be the salt of the heavens and the light of the upper atmosphere. Salt addresses rot. Light addresses darkness. There's no darkness or rot in heaven. Somehow the very darkness we are meant to expose has managed to manipulate most Christians into believing we are only to, quote, save the lost and not get involved in the things of the world, quote, unquote. We don't even do the reaching the lost part very well in many circles, or very often. If we did reach the lost, political issues would be far less polemic. Most church growth in America for the past several decades has been a movement of church membership changes rather than soul-transforming reaching of people. Children born to Christian families become the next generation of Christians, but if raised in a lukewarm, half-hearted religious system, they just carry on the impotent, compromising, ineffectual cultural Christian counterfeit of the real gospel that they grew up in. So historically... God has always had to allow the rot tolerated by the existing expression of his people to reach a point that awakens two vitally needed and equally necessary responses. First, repentance toward God. And second, action against evil. 
and in a nation with an elected representative government, something that is recent in the development of history. We are the government. If we claim that we must submit to the government because all government comes from God and to fail to submit to the government form, whatever form it takes over us, is to fail to submit to God, well, then what do you do when the form of government God has given is a democratic republic in which you are the government? If we fail to act in whatever way has been made available to us in our present system of government, to use every possible means to resist evil and establish good, we disobey the command of Romans 12.21 to overcome evil with good. By the way, not all governmental forms are obeying God or pleasing to Him, so that's a whole other subject we haven't got time to pursue here. But it is clear that we are to submit to the established government of our of our culture. But it also says, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 16, when rulers are wicked, their people are too. But good people will live to see tyrants overthrown or fall. You might also want to read Psalm 94 and Psalm 37 in reference to this. Proverbs 28 verse 5 says, Evil men don't understand or care about justice, but those who know the Lord are much concerned about it. We are to care about justice, and that cannot merely mean we have warm feelings about the subject of justice. It has to mean we do something about it. Proverbs 28 verse 15, A wicked ruler is as dangerous to the poor as a lion or a bear attacking them. Wicked rulers are dangerous to the poor. If it is in our power to stop the wickedness or deter it by political means and we fail to do it, then James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Proverbs 29 verse 7, A good man knows the poor, the poor man's rights. The godless don't care about the poor man's rights. Again, A good man or woman takes note of the rights of the poor, the underdog, the defenseless, and acts to bring good. If he doesn't, it's sin. Let me be quick to add here that none of us can be directly involved in everything. I care about a lot of issues. I'm unable to directly act on behalf of all of them, certainly, and can usually only engage myself in a handful, only three or four at the most, And it's dangerous when we get insulted at those who don't take our particular concern on board with the same passion we may have about it. Everyone must be faithful to our own particular calling and bloom where we're planted. But if we all were doing that, the shape of the battlefield would be far more favorable to life and godliness than it is. It's understandable when people say that they can't vote for either party. I understand that. But let that never mean we are doing nothing. The failure of Christians to vote has made an open highway for candidates who not only support evil but are ravenous to push its poison down the throats of you and your children. Sadly, uneducated Christian population that refuses to support one candidate over the other unless the one candidate is 100% with them on every item simply gives evil a superhighway of freedom. 
Some have said to me they want the evil to keep being empowered in order to bring down the false system of hypocrisy that has been in place too long. That may sound spiritually minded, but look at the results. There is no such thing as a 100% improvement over a present system. It is utopian, humanistic, and anti-Christian to believe there's such a thing as a pure, electable human being that can fix everything. So for you to not use wisdom and discernment and discretion in your support of a particular candidate is a complete abnegation of your responsibility. Thank God William Wilberforce didn't think like that, or England would have never overturned the evil of slavery. Thank God Martin Luther King didn't believe that, or black people would still be in the back of the bus. Thank God Daniel didn't believe that when he submitted to the pagan rulers of Babylon and even worked for them and was therefore in the right place at the right time to be God's man for the hour. In a fallen world, we do not compromise our virtue for evil, ever. But in a fallen world, we do have to work within whatever system we have in our era with faith that God will use us for the greatest good. But he can't use us at all for anything if we're taking false refuge from the battle by sitting out of the war and waiting for a hole in the sky. Where did this otherworldly escapism come from? How did we become so confused about our responsibilities? There are several streams of thought that have contributed, but the main source was the pietistic movement of the 1700s. It began as a healthy protest against the dead formalism of the day, but it had in its DNA a flaw, a view of spirituality taken more from Plato than from Scripture, with possibly even some Gnostic strain in it, which wrongly divided the spiritual from the material. This fed into an equally wrong-headed rejection of the entire spectrum of human life, most costly was its rejection of the intellectual sphere. This concept only grew as the decades became centuries, and it's typical of modern Americans, and I guess some Europeans, even though they don't have the myopic, small-minded attitude about history that Americans do, but it just goes to show how little we understand the effects of the flow of history if we think this point of view of the 1700s has no effect on us. Francis Schaeffer says about this, quote, The basic problem of the Christians in this century, in this country especially, in regard to society and in regard to government, is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of in totals. They have gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, finally abortion and now homosexuality, but they've not seen this as a totality each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a total shift in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. This shift has been away from a worldview that was at least vaguely Christian in people's memory, even if they were not individually Christian towards something completely different, towards a worldview based on the idea that the final reality 
is impersonal matter or energy shaped into its present form by impersonal chance. They've not seen that this worldview has taken the place of the one that had previously dominated Northern European culture, including the United States, which was at least Christian in memory, even if the individuals were not individually Christian. These two worldviews stand as totals in complete antithesis to each other in content and also in their natural results, including sociological and governmental results, and especially including law. It is not that these two worldviews are different openly in how they understand the nature of reality and existence, they also inevitably produce totally different results. The operative word here is inevitably. It is not just that they happen to bring forth different results. It is absolutely inevitable that they will bring forth different results. And there is no way to mix these two total worldviews. They are separate entities. They cannot be synthesized. End quote. There's a scene from the science fiction film Independence Day, which came out over 15 years ago now, in which the president of what is left of the United States after an alien space invasion is speaking to a captured invading alien. And he says, we can reach a truce. Can there be a peace between us? The alien replies, no, no peace. What do you want from us? Die. Die. Whether our faith caused us in the name of Christian love to <clears throat> seek a truce, or whether we just simply were too naive and foolish to see the facts, we have sat back for decades while evil has taken over. William Butler Yeats describes this phenomenon in his poem, The Second Coming, by saying, quote, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It is a fact of history that people tend toward passive toleration of evil. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are being peace-loving and tolerant. Live and let live. Christians. The real fact is we are indifferent to evil unless it touches us directly in some way. We may even be guilty of not only tolerating the evil out of selfish indifference, but out of some secret partial affinity with it. I painfully remember on the day Roe versus Wade made the murder of babies legal in 1972 that the thought passed through my mind, whether it was my own thought or one suggested to me from the devil matters not. I held that thought. That quote, if that's now legal, certain of my own favorite sins will become more available also. No, I didn't consciously embrace that thought. It only slightly passed through my consciousness, but enough for me to remember it. But I could not have even had that thought if my heart and soul and mind and strength had been fully committed to the God I claimed to know and love and serve 
And though I may be wrong in my theory, I must ask the question, is that what was going on in the minds of the majority of Christians in 1972? For it was only the Roman Catholic believers who openly, actively, and publicly took a stand to fight the institutionalizing of the murder of children. The Protestant Church was as silent on the subject as we have been in the previous decade over divorce and rising sexual immorality. The best lack all conviction. We seem historically to only begin to awaken from this self-imposed, self-deception slumber only when the evil begins to touch us directly. God allows the impending growth of that evil in order to force us out of our false peace, our lethargy, indifference, love of pleasure, and love of this present world. While the worst are full of passionate intensity, the Antichrist forces of humanism saw long before the Christians did that there cannot be a peace between us. Die. You must die. There is no live and let live toleration between these two worldviews. Because of our faith, we could and did give place to their unbelief and tolerated their choices within the limits of civil law. And to be fair, it was somewhat because of a desire to respect the views of others. After all, isn't that what freedom of speech is about? Isn't that what America is about? What democracy is about? But while openness to other points of view made us vulnerable to conflict, it much worse made us vulnerable to seduction. We didn't lose our country to the philosophy of a superior worldview we could not beat in a debate. We could have easily beat them in a debate. We simply joined them in their celebration of bread and circuses. We didn't debate at all. We didn't know how because we gave up our superior intellectual, moral, philosophical, and spiritual position and sat back to imbibe the much easier and more flesh-indulging entertainments supplied by the left. But we kept going to Sunday school to put a band-aid on our growing malignancy. But the smut peddlers and the child molesters and the baby murderers and the child destroyers were not so accommodating. Why? People who don't murder, rape, and destroy can live and let live as long as you don't murder, rape, and destroy ours. People who are passionate enough about evil to perform such evil must therefore be passionate enough to take more and more and more territory from those who are not destroyers. We can let them do their thing. They will not and philosophically cannot reciprocate. It is manifestly evident that they intend to wipe out all expression of the honor of God from the public square. And don't be fooled, once they succeed there, they will then begin wiping out the private sphere also. They've already begun that program in the government propaganda mind control school systems. And if you don't consider our children's minds, hearts, and souls to be the private and sacred concern of the home over the school, then we are evidently good students of the evil system and have graduated with honors from its mind control. If we think, well, we did live and let live for over 200 years now. How come it's all changed? We show again our tendency toward childish naivete or willful blindness. There can be no such thing as stagnation in the spirit realm. Everything is becoming 
what it really is. The dark will grow darker. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. And so far, it is the dark that has been full of passionate intensity. But the light will grow brighter. The path of the just is like a shining light growing brighter and brighter until it reaches perfect noonday, Proverbs 4.18 says. Those who are wise shall shine like the stars, and stars shine brightest when it's darkest, and they will turn many to righteousness like the stars forever, Daniel 12, verse 3. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But Second Timothy 3 also says in verse 9, But they shall proceed no further, for their folly will be made manifest before all, just as Jannies and Jambres' folly was made manifest when Moses' snake ate their snakes. The wheat and the tares may appear to look the same, but at the time of the harvest, it becomes clear what produces fruit and what is worthy only of destruction. Matthew 13, verse 24 through 30. There's no way a society can coexist for long with governmental-controlled enforced evil. The flow of history, overseen by a sovereign God who intends to ultimately separate the light from the dark and is moving the nations of the earth into position for the final conflict between good and evil, that sovereign God will fulfill all his will. Only he alone can bring it to its conclusion, but we will know our part in the battle, and we will walk with him and seek to obey him. And Psalm 110 says, My people shall make of themselves a freewill offering in the day I gather my army. That will mean that we will not obey an unrighteous law. An ungodly law is not a law at all. It may be attractive to our flesh to hide behind false concepts of submission to authority or to take too much comfort in any concept of an any-minute escape through the sky. But the time has come for all of us to decide what price we're willing to pay to honor God rather than man. It is no longer a topic for evening discussion around a comfortable church fellowship hall or dining table in your living room. The Hebrew midwives who refused Pharaoh's edict to murder babies, to the current individual rejection of sodomite attempts to force support of their sin upon the people of God, from forced payments of funds to support abortion, to forced silence of Christian witness in public, we will not obey. Period. If there is a sudden rapture of the church, wonderful. But if not, we will not obey. We spoke in previous times together of healing the house divided. But let's be clear, the healing spoken of in that message takes place between individuals and God and with each other in God's love. When it comes to evil systems which hate God, there cannot be any reconciliation we will either work within the legal confines of functional government to remove evil influences from control, or we will stand against those forces at whatever cost necessary in order to obey God. But we will not bow. We will not conform. We will not obey evil. And the chief instrument of our resistance is speech. 
So, the spiritual battle at present is one of either suppressing speech and or manipulating the minds and souls of people by manipulating the meanings of words. To be equipped to stand true in such a battle, we must understand the enemy's twisting of language, so we will not be either fooled by it, or worse, inadvertently become participants in it. For it's bad enough to be duped, but it's even worse to become a duped dupe, a useful idiot, as Lenin and the early communists loved to name those whom they used as pawns to further their cause. Christians who inadvertently use politically correct speech, so-called, are the devil's favorite useful idiots. What is political correctness? The very phrase itself is so insipidly stupid that it should raise the ire of any thinking person. David Capellian says, quote, Political correctness David Capellian says, is, quote, an insidious frontal attack on common sense and conscience through language manipulation. Even the phrase politically correct sounds demented. Politics, like all areas of opinion and preference that emanate from our core worldview, is a matter of free choice and personal autonomy in America. Nobody can tell you the correct opinions to have, it was Mao Zedong who first originated the concept of speaking what is politically correct. But it's okay if you quote Mao since he has his face on the decorations at the Christmas tree at the White House. This is what George Orwell referred to as news speak in his novel 1984. It means the language imposed on the populace in order to control their thoughts and opinions. Yet I hear Christians periodically make passing reference to being politically correct or say with a slight degree of embarrassment, quote, well, what I just said now wasn't exactly politically correct, but that should never, under any circumstances, be the way to refer to political correctness. It should never be referred to with the slightest degree of deference, much less respect, in fact, it should always, always be referred to, if at all, with disdain and mockery for the leftist foolishness that it is. For the disciple of Jesus, if you are politically correct, then you are in some degree betraying the Lord. Now, I want to give you a short list, and it's a certainly very short list, because <laughs> The manipulation and twisting of language just goes on and on and on with these people and the demons that help them. But here's a short list of PC terminology that you're so exposed to, you may not have even thought about it. Notice how the terms automatically bring with them a twist in the mind of the user so that one cannot use the term without in some way or other altering his or her thoughts and beliefs about the term and its subject. For instance, alternate lifestyle. Alternate lifestyle. Alternate to what? Well, alternate to the revelation of God and the corporate wisdom of thousands of years of civilized history, especially as it relates to sexual practices. Alternate to God. 
What a cute way of speaking of rebellion. Alternate lifestyle. Is it a lifestyle? No, it's a death style. Just for instance, the Center of Disease Control reported that in 2007 alone, the alternate lifestyle resulted in 63% of all syphilis cases. Currently, AIDS is rising again in the Western countries, especially in Europe and most especially in the United Kingdom. Of course, this is Ronald Reagan's fault. Besides, if we don't report on it, it will go away, so we don't report on it. The point is, speaking of a lifestyle of sexual irresponsibility as an alternate is a cute euphemism, but it doesn't make the truth go away. It's not a lifestyle. It's a death style and a departure from sanity. Same-sex union. This is the attempt to make the primary and secondary generative organs, along with other orifices of the human body, functional in a way they were not designed to function, and then trying to make this constitute a union. This is no more a union than forcing a water hose into an electrical socket can be called wiring or plumbing. Sexually active. To say that in real language, someone is sexually active means some folks fornicate with only one other mutual fornicator, while others have multiple fornication partners. Notice the implicit idea inherent in the phrase is that married couples are, what, not sexually active? The idea there is uh, that all the fun is out there with those who behave like dogs in heat, while the dreary family life of a faithful couple who love one another exclusively and faithfully all their lives is loveless and boring. Safe sex. This refers to the practice of keeping a thin and undependable layer of latex between you and your sexually active lover of the moment, a potentially porous piece of rubber which is subject to tearing, but which makes you falsely believe that you are free from all negative consequences of immoral, illicit sexual behavior. Period. Never mind that there is no reference to the lost virginity, or the consequence of broken relationships, or the deep emotional and relational scars and mental and emotional and sexual confusion that often end in murder and suicide. There's also the added bonus of often finding that disease has still managed to make its way through the protection mechanism, or that pregnancy has, but of course the pregnancy can always be managed. The baby can be killed. Homophobic. When understood correctly, this word literally means fear of that which is the same. An arachnid is a spider. Arachnophobia is fear of spiders. Claustrophobia is fear of closets or enclosed spaces. But no, homophobia means an irrational fear of homosexuality. That's what it's supposed to mean. The alternative to homophobia is to be fully embracing and affirming of a way of life that, with some exceptions, and I stress there are some exceptions, is super high risk for disease, violence, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, and irrefutably is characterized by a rampant serial promiscuity and a far higher degree of sexual abuse of minors than there is among heterosexuals. 
When these facts are laid out, the truth speaker is attacked and often threatened with bodily harm, which supports the sanity of those who are labeled homophobic. They have reason to be afraid. Now let's go to the Middle East. Since homophobic seemed to catch on, it was inevitable that the same manipulation of language might be used to describe the equally unbalanced nature of any who for some reason are afraid of those who precede blowing themselves and others to pieces with the cry of Allah Akbar, or who quote the Koran as their reason to behave like monsters from another world. We all know most of the murder, torture, maiming, and raping going on in the world today is actually being carried on by red-headed Irish nuns from Milwaukee, not Muslims. But that takes us to the term moderate Muslim. We keep being told about the huge majority of Muslims who do not adhere to violence. But they don't speak up against the violence because I do understand they're afraid because of the violence that will be then perpetrated against them. They only seem to speak up about those who speak up against violence. And of these many wonderful Muslims who do not strap bombs to themselves or their children, the number of these moderates who believe in Sharia law, which tortures and maims people, especially women, and which supports the destruction of Israel off the face of the earth, is equal to the number of people presently populating the entire United States. About 300 million such, quote, moderate Muslims believe in Sharia law and the annihilation of Israel. So everything in moderation, I guess, only a little killing, a little maiming, a little raping, and a little torture. For the few Muslims among us who do truly honor life and liberty, let us be sensitive and caring and respectful. But they must know that they are close to apostasy from their own faith by not embracing violence and hatred. They are very close, actually, to the kingdom of God. Mideast Peace This refers to the concept of forcing the only democracy in the entire region to give up all means of self-protection by giving up land, border control, and the autonomy of their own capital city of Jerusalem, while their Arab neighbors, which outnumber them 500 to 1, daily speak, even hourly proclaim, their will that they will not rest until they can completely finish what Adolf Hitler started. But the religion of peace. This inane mantra was coined by George Bush and the Bush administration to underscore that we are not at war with Islam, even though Islam is obviously at war with us. All reference to Islamic terrorism has been removed from the training manuals of our military while we sent them off to fight Muslim terrorists. If you don't believe Islam is a religion of peace, they will kill you for not believing it. Well, let's move to economic fascism. How about carbon footprint? The leftist way of saying you are taking up too much space on the planet, leaving your carbon footprint behind as you evidence that you are using too much of the God-given resource. Of course, it isn't God-given but was eked out of the evolving terra firma with very limited supply to spare. So you would be better off shooting yourself rather than continuing to use up 
our very limited space and resources. But you can't shoot yourself with a gun because guns kill people, so you should find a more green-friendly way to off yourself. Spokespersons for this insanity often live in more than one home at a time and drive or fly around the country using more power in one hour for the many homes and mobilities than most of us use in our homes in a month. But you got to remember, theirs is a high and lonely destiny, remember? It's hard not to want to leave them a carbon footprint uh, somewhere where they'll feel it. Income redistribution. This used to be called stealing. It's still stealing. But if you don't call it that, it's uh, still stealing. Paying your fair share. It's now estimated that nearly half of the country does not pay any taxes at all. The great majority of taxes are paid by the highest income bracket, The rest is covered by you and me and the rest of the hard-working middle. So how do we decide and who decides what everyone's fair share is? Well, that's decided by one of the next leftist euphemisms. Social justice. That's right. We institute social justice, which used to mean protecting people from injustice in society. Now it means breaking all sorts of laws in order to provide those who do not work or earn a living, the living earned and worked for by other people. This was once called stealing. It is still stealing, but if you call it social justice, it is still stealing. Okay, I'm with you. Please, let's stop and get off this. This merry-go-round is making us all sick. We could go on and on and on if we could stand the strain. We didn't even mention yet a woman's right to choose or how the media, even the so-called fair and balanced one, calls the murder of babies pro-choice but calls we who believe in life anti-abortionist. Then there are all those many words that have new meanings. Fairness, hope, change, transparency, Post-partisan. Now, that's one we do need to look at. It means whatever the left wants, it must be able to have unhindered. This will be post-partisan, all right, because it means that it has no opposition. Whatever it wants, it gets, and everybody else is shoved out of the way. No more partisan bickering, see? How about one of my personal favorites, civility? Civility means when the left hits their opponents in the face and it hurts their hand by the impact on the face of their opponent, the cause of the hand being hurt by the face of the opponent was incivility on the part of the person whose face was slapped. It's kin to nonpartisan, which means to the leftist, What's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine. I can attack you, and it's truth-speaking. If you come back with arguments that I can't really successfully debate with truth, I simply attack you with any means possible. I will then call you partisan, and of course label you as being guilty of incivility. And then, of course, there's tolerance. Tolerance. 
Tolerance means everybody is right except believing Jews and practicing Christians. And then finally, yeah, really, truly, finally, though we could still go on and on, anyone who speaks the truth we don't happen to agree with are guilty of hate speech. Now, as we take a deep breath and get past the nausea of this whole necessary but disgusting subject, what are we going to do with this mess? Well, I hope we know by now, or at least are learning, that we don't battle evil with evil. We may fight fire with fire, but it's got to be holy fire against hellfire, not hellfire against hellfire. The Greek word apologia or apologia, is where we get the English word for apology, but that's not the same definition at all. The original meaning was to give an answer, and not a mere response to a question. The word means a reasoned, well-thought-out explanation which responds to all attacks against the truth that you're presenting. It was the word used for making your case in court, or for the purpose of arriving at a verdict based on testimony of evidence. So when Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, tells us to always be ready to give an answer, this is what he means. Mary often quotes uh, one of her favorite Catholic writers, Michelle Coy, who refers to the talking heads on television who argue over all sorts of issues as being like people who have chewed all the flavor out of the gum but are just keeping on chewing anyway. It's about as fruitful. This is worse than a mere waste of time, this kind of arguing, this kind of banter. It's a means of avoiding the real battle while at the same time exhausting us in useless arguments. That's kind of what Gandalf was referring to in The Two Towers when he says to Grima Wormtongue, I did not pass through death and darkness to bandy words with a serving man until the lightning falls. Meaning, I have come through and faced the real issues of life and death. I will not dishonor that fact by wasting my time or words or energy playing word ping pong with a, quote, serving man until the lightning falls or until the tragedies of our current peril strike and it will no longer matter what words were or were not said by the good or the evil. Now, this is not intended to insult the fine, hard-working people who make an honest living serving others, but it speaks of one hugely unqualified who is being allowed to stand in a place of leadership. To waste time and words on such a one is foolish, but when the lightning is about to fall, it's worse than foolish. It's deadly. I've offered only a short list though I'm sure it feels terribly long to us to have to listen to it and wearisome. But a short list of some of the ways the abusers of freedom and twisters of language seek to destroy the communication of ideas by manipulating the meaning of some words and forbidding the use of other words. When those concerned with civility warn of the danger of uncivil or even threatening speech, The manipulators of language cry, freedom of speech, we have the right to say whatever. When those who stand for freedom speak freely, the manipulators then cry, oh, political correctness. 
which I hope you understand now if you did not before, means tyrannical control of free flow of ideas by disallowing certain words and the ideas behind those words. See how they continually seek to manipulate the flow of language in order to control the outcome? Now, Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your words be always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. When we read that that verse, that's Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it's very easy to misinterpret this verse to mean always be nice, always make sure you're nice. This this is not what Paul's saying. He's This has nothing to do with trying to be nice. Remember what we said about nice. It's not a nice thing to get a proper definition of nice. But anyway, Paul is saying, when you are interacting with those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus, use your head, pay attention, listen with respect, then answer with grace. That is, with truth appropriate to the conversation, not with platitudes. He refers to our words being like salt. Well, what does salt do? It, it preserves the good. It holds back and retards the bad. And it enhances the flavor of the entire meal. That's how our conversation needs to be. We offer the good. We rebuke the bad. And we seek to enhance the flavor of life for the best possible outcome like salt does in food. Now, in other words, the, the you seek to speak with grace doesn't mean that you're effeminate. It doesn't mean that you're acquiescent. It doesn't mean you speak with a soft voice, necessarily. It means that you have the discernment to recognize who you're speaking to, what the tone of the conversation needs to be, and how to move it in a direction where the best possible outcome might be achieved without compromising truth. In order to communicate life, we have to hone our language and our life's character also to be in line with God so that our words have weight. If we misuse language, the Holy Spirit cannot affirm our words with signs following. If our words align with his spirit, then our small efforts to communicate become supercharged with the anointing. It says of the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord did not allow one word he spoke to fall to the ground. We should seek to become vessels of honor whose words God can back up the same way. I'm not there. I pray to get there. The enemy is always seeking to make language a source of confusion and falsehood. He is the father of lies. The purpose of language should be to communicate things as they really are. To twist the meaning of words means you are trying to make language perform a transforming devilish twist so that they no longer communicate things as they really are, but they only become deformed servants of the evil will of the twisted speaker. Remember, that's the very thing Satan said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. You will surely not die, 
But in the day you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Decide for yourself. That's another way of saying twist words to mean what you want them to instead of what they really are. Just take the word marriage, for instance. When we use this word the way it has been used for all of human history, we all have a common understanding of what it refers to. We know what it means. Now, for the first time in all of history, regardless of the attempts to rewrite history otherwise, an arrogant portion of Western culture is seeking to redefine the word marriage and apply it to the sexual activity of persons of the same gender. When a culture thinks it can arbitrarily redefine a word to suit what we want it to mean instead of honoring its historic meaning, we automatically are assuming that we have the power to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. Once we believe we can decide meaning based on fantasy, we begin to operate in black magic. This inevitably leads to tyranny because the guiding authority of meaning is now removed and replaced by whoever has the most power to enforce their will. Notice the wording in the Supreme Court case 1992 handed down in the case of uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This is what it says. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life, end quote. Now, if that had been written by a dope-smoking college freshman trying to express his existential fantasies in high-sounding prose, it would be difficult enough to tolerate, and hopefully would receive low marks and or a wise correction from a decent professor. But for such sophist dribble to be handed down from a Supreme Court judge only shows how far we have fallen spiritually, then philosophically, then educationally, and finally legally. See, you cannot separate the spiritual from the political. It's simply not possible. The high-sounding statement, you can't legislate morality, is a vapid meaningless statement. We might as well say you can't legislate legislation or you can't have moral morals. All legislation consists of somebody's moral ideas. Once we decide words can be twisted to suit whoever is in power, then those redefined words get woven into the very fabric of the nation and those twisted words become the building blocks of a twisted moral fantasy which provides a new stage for the play acting to be acted out of a script written by the insane. So we now have gay marriage. The word gay has been raped of its real meaning. Now the word marriage is being raped in the same way. Then place the two together and they provide a platform for that which was never meant to be. And then it begins to become. The same is happening with phrases which once sounded so silly that they were only spoken in mocking jest. Child molestation becomes intergenerational romance. Incest, interfamilial relations, or yes, even bestiality is now interspecial union. 
I wonder if it will help them to call the coming wrath of God divine dissidence or maybe providential corrective therapy. We began this several hours of study in the meaning and use of words with my own confession of sin in the misuse of them. We went beyond that to look at the spiritual power behind words, that words have meaning, they carry power, and can change things for good or for ill. We learned that we will give account to God on the day of judgment for every word we speak because made in his image we carry the weight of responsibility to use words to bless and not to curse, to give life and not death, and to honor truth and not lies. Then we took a turn into more difficult territory, into the question of how we are to be salt and light in a rotting and darkening culture and how to use our words, especially when confronting forces which seek to twist our words, while flooding the atmosphere with their own unchallenged evil. That gets into the thorny question of how much the disciples of Jesus are to be engaged in the culturally political atmosphere. That's where we are now. And I can promise you I will not satisfy every question in the time we have left, and the best I can do is probably stir up a lot more questions with no answers. And that's been done before, and it it needs to be an ongoing struggle. Life's a dance, it's not a march, and sometimes we have to learn how to lead, and sometimes we have to learn how to follow. But Scripture has told us how this thing's going to wrap up, and all the signs of Scripture are moving so swiftly into place that it's only the uninformed or the willfully self-deceived who try to convince themselves otherwise, like the scoffers of Second Peter 3. Where is the promise of his coming? Since our forefathers died, all things remain just like they've always been. We must keep being aware of the impending and swift changes that are moving this planet toward the close of this age, while we keep standing for the word of God in every arena that we're called to stand. So how do we offer our apologia? We have to first discern the hearts of our audience. They tend to fall into four basic categories. They may overlap a bit, but we need to understand the hearts of those we're trying to speak to. To refer back again to Colossians 4, we've got to learn to speak with grace, which means we learn to speak with understanding, not with just some simpering, quiet, demure uh, pseudo-spirituality that acquiesces and kowtows to every other opinion. It means that we discern who we're speaking to so we know how to respond. And there's various ways to respond. We, res- we, we respond to people who are broken and hungry as their servants, like Paul refers to in First Thessalonians chapter 1. But we stand against manifest evil with a strong, strong rebuke, as Peter did to Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, or Paul to Elamus the sorcerer in Acts chapter 13. We need to understand that some people's hearts are already wide open, like Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17, for examples. The ground of their hearts has already been prepared to receive, Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 4. Then there's other people whose hearts have to be shaken into a position of being willing to be awakened. And I believe that that's, I really believe that's the majority of, of people in Western culture right now. What I mean by that is they're, they're not listening, but 
they are willing to become willing to listen. And when the right shakings occur, there will be a great audience of people willing to hear. And we need to be ready to speak the truth. And we need to be living the truth so when we speak it, it has weight that the Holy Spirit can bless. Isaiah 26, 9 says, When your judgments are in the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. There's mercy in the shaking of the world. We're on the threshold of a time of increased willingness to listen, I believe. Until then, we keep speaking. And we have four basic categories of people, I believe. Those who can't hear, now that says four categories beside those I've already referred to who do want to hear, whose hearts are open. But beyond them, what about the ones that are more difficult? I think there's four categories. Those who can't hear, those who won't hear, those who mishear, and those who do hear and then willfully try to destroy the message. Number one, those who can't hear, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, says that our words are the way that the lies of the enemy are broken off of people who are blinded by him. We, let me just read it here, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. We have renounced underhanded ways and refused to distort the gospel. But by openly proclaiming and living the truth, we commend ourselves. The the Greek here is we reveal our souls. Sometimes in communicating the gospel, uh, I think most most times in communicating the gospel, we need to not not necessarily just quote scripture, although we need to always honor scripture, but we need to communicate what's in our own souls to people. And that's a whole other subject I can't pursue here, but I just find people are a lot more open if I talk to them uh, out of my own heart. I become a a letter to them known and read of all men instead of quoting Scripture. I am living Scripture, which honors the written Scripture. Sometimes we get a magical idea that if we just quote a few Scriptures, that's just going to magically do it. No, there's something more going on here than than, uh, just us putting doctrine down people's throats in a maybe a spirit of detachment that makes them feel we're trying to turn them into scalps on our belt instead of people that Jesus loves and that we love. So we, we reveal our souls to all in the sight of God. Then Paul says, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded so that the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus can shine, is is being hindered from them seeing the light. And the whole purpose of this chapter, I don't have time to get into it in detail, but the whole purpose of this chapter is to uh, make our lives the message so that when we speak, it penetrates relationally, intellectually, spiritually. Only the Holy Spirit can open people's hearts but he expects us to be his representatives and he will use us if we let him. The thrust of Paul's statement in this entire chapter is, since the enemy is hiding the gospel from the lost, you become light and truth to them so they can see it. By first your life and then your words. 
they will hear if there's something offered worth hearing. Group number two, those who won't hear. There are those who won't hear. Romans 1.18 says they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth. They're not like those in the first category who can't hear because they're blinded. These are those who won't hear. They suppress the truth because they like evil. And so Paul speaks of the foolishness of preaching in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. Supernatural power in the weakness of our honest testimony so that people's faith will stand in the power of God and not in our eloquence. So we just lovingly, carefully speak the truth, even in the face of those who suppress it, trusting the Holy Spirit to let our words, even spoken in a whisper, sound like a cannon. Number three, those who miss here. These are the ones who are listening, but they're not understanding or they're misunderstanding because of some hurt or some bondage in their life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 and 24, don't have anything to do with foolish and disorderly arguments because you know they only lead to fights. We must never be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. If perhaps God may give them repentance and they come to their senses and escape the devil's trap who has been holding them captive in order to make them do his will. This is the ministry of counseling. This is the ministry of pastoral care. This is the ministry of putting your arm around people in their brokenness and speaking the truth. And and this this is where many, many people are. There's only a small handful, I believe, who fit into the number four category. Those who willfully hear and then willfully distort the truth. Second Timothy 3, which we've referred to several times, Paul speaks of those who willfully resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. These are those who know enough truth to willfully twist it. You say, well, isn't that the same category as uh, the one you mentioned before from from uh, Romans 1? They, they suppress the truth. Now, I think they're two different groups. I think Romans 1 is referring to those who suppress the truth because they like sin. This last category are those who who take the truth and twist it into a deformity that is for the purpose of leading as many astray as as possible. These are the apologists for sinful lifestyles. The sophists, like so-called Bishop Spong, who was notorious back in the 80s and 90s for twisting the scriptures into the total opposite of their meaning. These are the ones referred to in the book of Jude and in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we've already referred to. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. Evil men and seducers, which Paul says will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, These are the categories where it takes more than just a quiet voice and reasonable um, communication. 
there's a time when uh, there is a place for prophetic confrontation. Uh, to cite scripture to support this, how about Isaiah? How about Ezekiel? How about Jeremiah? How about Matthew chapter 23? I mean, there's so many scriptures. It would take references to almost the entire scripture. And it's too much to try to get into here to try to demonstrate how to appropriately respond. I don't think I could teach it. I don't think there's any way to teach it. I think you have to have a fire in your heart for the truth and trust the Holy Spirit to give you a a mouth and wisdom which your enemies will not be able to gainsay nor resist. But our point in this closing time together in this hour is that there is a place and a time for prophetic fire. And uh, we need to discern who we're speaking to. There are times when I've been thinking, well, I'm, I'm up against one of these sophists. And then it turns out, no, they were their, their hearts were actually prepared to receive. Then, sadly, thankfully lesser, but sadly, there have been times when I thought I had someone whose heart was open and receptive who were actually resisting the truth and twisting it. You have to discern case by case, person by person, encounter by encounter. Father, please grant us the grace to have the discernment to know what we're up against and to be prepared for it, not only intellectually, but most of all, in the way we live and the way we relate to you and love what you love and hate what you hate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.